The following audio drama contains mild peril and some swearing, and reference to gender discrimination. Listener discretion is advised. Manifestations. Written, read, and produced by Alex C.F. Kirby stood outside the North London house, bag slung over their shoulder, squinting through their glasses. The sun was behind the house, the gloom erasing any detail in its facade. They were taken by its presence. A house, mere stone and wood and metal, exuded a kind of personality, the way one might see a face in the position of headlights and grill on a car. Kirby was already pattern-seeking, already aware of what they expected to be in the house. They juggled objective and subjective interpretations. The front door was open, and two workmen emerged, carrying black flight cases. They exchanged a goodbye with James, having completed their work, and left. Kirby could see Josh and Maggie, the couple who owned the house, in the window of the lounge. Eshram stood beside them, appearing like an estate agent to a potential new tenant, gesturing enthusiastically to features in their own house. James had returned to his van, which was laid out like an electrician, with compartments lining the walls. He was busy rummaging through boxes of equipment. Who were they? Kirby gestured at the Luton van driving away. Oh, they were contracted by Arkwright. They've been installing a new containment system. We isolated the reason why the shellac substance was able to block the movement of the exotic matter. It behaved like lead. It's all about the density of electrons. They've created an electron laser grid that mimics the resin. Fascinating. Kirby shrugged. Let's see the scar then. James turned and grinned. He lifted up his shirt to reveal a faint red line that ran just above his navel. It healed really quickly. Doctor said the scar might eventually disappear. Kirby grimaced. Was it painful? James frowned. It was so fast and I didn't... I, I couldn't make sense of what was happening. Before I knew it, I had passed out from all the blood loss. Kirby put their hand on his shoulder. Almost killed by a ghost. That's pretty badass. James laughed. Almost killed by Eshram if I don't get this stuff set up. So you think this will work? Kirby replied. Well, the folks who own this place have given us free reign. Arkwright has had a team in setting up everything and he will be monitoring from a distance. I can run the entire system from my iPad. I plan to make the most of this. We learned a lot from that thing in the box. It was an aberration, something so old and twisted up, it wasn't something to be understood or reasoned with. The thing in this house, they, they say it lived here, John something or other. If Arkwright is correct, we may even be able to isolate it, study it even. James gestured to the crate of wires and Kirby picked it up. They talked as they walked up the gravel path. Inside, a scaffolding that resembled a gazebo without the fabric had been constructed in the front room with the sofas having been pushed back to the far wall. In the centre was a metal table, upon which was a contraption of sorts. James pointed at the table. Can you slide that box under there, please? Eshram waved a hello to Kirby and ushered them to join him and the homeowners. Kirby, this is John Etwistle and Abby Granger. Guys, this is Kirby Fitzpatrick. I believe you spoke to each other on the phone. They shook hands and exchanged nervous hellos. Yes, so as we mentioned before, I will be conducting a series of interviews to ascertain as a clear of an account as possible of your experiences, and I have been told you both have a vested interest in solving this situation. Josh nodded. Yeah, well, we can't live here, and we can't in good conscience sell the place knowing there is this, Maggie interjected, situation. They all smirked. Maggie moved towards the dining room. I thought we could do the interviews in here. When the door is closed, you can't hear the TV, so I assume we won't disturb whatever the tent thing is in there. Kirby smiled. Yeah, I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure it has an important purpose. Josh was absent-mindedly staring at the structure. 
I wonder if it's the, like the thing that Arkwright set up to observe the spirit in his house. He pulled out a chair and sat down. Kirby did the same, and after a few minutes, Maggie returned with a glass of water. She sat down beside Josh. Kirby pulled out their laptop and set up a mic in the centre of the table. So, I like to keep this pretty loose and casual. The questions are more jumping off points than particulars. So I'm just going to pick up from where we last spoke. This was after you made the connection between the previous owner of this house. You believed you managed to impart upon it the reality of its death. Maggie coughed. Yeah, yeah, I recorded it. Wait. She took out her phone and scrolled to a recording app. She placed it on the table, pressing the play button on an older recording. There was the fumble of fabric too close to the mic, a panicked scream, and her voice. You were here, but you aren't alive anymore. I'm sorry, so sorry. You died. You had cancer and you died. There was a pause, the hiss of distorted static, and then... I had cancer and I died. The words seemed woven of that sonic dissonance, a rasping, imperfect fray of blue-bottle hum. But it was a human voice, a man, who had spoken. Kirby had heard this before. The raw file had been analysed. The analysis showed that the voice appeared to be generated by manipulation of the static. It was as though the voice had used the ambient noise to articulate itself. Kirby leaned back in their chair. Fuck, they said. It's hard to contextualise stuff like this. When we approach human experience and memory, pretty muddy waters, recollections itself is like a copy of a copy. But when you have a voice, which we assume isn't fake... They grinned and made a note on their computer and gestured for them to continue. Maggie looked to Josh for a reassurance and then said, I felt almost as though the revelation would somehow resolve this, that he would, I don't know, walk into the light like Patrick Swayze. But I guess that's way too simple. Josh put his hand on hers. A few nights later we were in bed and the entity, we called him by his name, John, I awoke to see a figure standing in the corner of the room. It was just this black hole in the shape of a person. There was no light despite other items around, catching the ambient light from the window, and I felt this powerful sense of, Josh leaned forward, hate. You could feel hatred coming from it. I cannot describe it any other way, but John had gone from a confused mass of emotions into this rageful cancer in our home. Maggie nodded. Yeah, and that's when all the stuff started getting chucked around. We would come downstairs and there would be stuff all over the place, cupboards open, and what was weird is that we wouldn't hear it at night. It wouldn't wake us up. I would love to know how we slept through Auntie Kath's best china, ending up smashed to bits. Josh laughed, and that was kind of a blessing. I could see us dragging that ugly crap around with us for the rest of our lives. Maggie frowned with a trace of a smile. So yeah, John was no longer a whimsical presence. Now he was pissed. I thought maybe it was jealousy. He was now aware that he was dead and we were alive. He wanted us to know he wasn't happy with this arrangement. Josh sighed. But how do you reason with something you don't... Well, for one, you're terrified of it. And then... Kelby interrupted. That fear, I imagine it was constant. Did you move out because of it? Maggie nodded. We wanted to know what it was, but you can't keep a level head if you're scared all the time. We were both losing so much sleep, it was affecting work, and you can't go to your boss and say, I'm not sleeping because our house is haunted. Eshram appeared. I think we're ready. They were all escorted to the living room. James was completing construction of a device upon the table. So we have taken into account the materials that this presence can interact with. The armature is made of the synthetic analogue of the resin that was developed for use in the previous experiment. We know that it acts as a physical barrier to that matter, and so we hope that if our entity is composed of it, it will be able to manipulate this simply by moving against it. Laid out before them was remarkably utilitarian, lacking any sense of Victorian pomp and flair. 
a plain piece of semi-transparent white perspex with a series of letters and numbers laser etched into it. In the depression of each scored letter was a sensor. Above this was a stylus on a complicated armature made of a similar clear plastic. A series of servos controlled its dexterity, and yet it appeared to bob and weave with even the slightest touch. So the stylus is our planchette. It will act as a conduit for the intentions of the entity. We don't know how John manipulates his environment. Our working theory is that it's his physical presence, that which is responsible for the activity, this exotic matter or field that manipulates or interacts at least, with physical objects. Exotic matter, Maggie asked. Yes, basically a theoretical matter that exists in a state so far unobserved by physics. It's all conjecture, but there is evidence that clumps of this matter exist, rather like dark matter, which makes up the mass of the universe. And we are unable to see it, but it does interact with our environment. We believe that John's electrochemical state was somehow preserved by this matter, and what you are experiencing are facets of that. We don't know how conscious John is, but from our observations, in many ways, think of him as a faulty old hard drive from an abandoned computer. He reboots for playing events. It's where we see interaction that new information is generated. But does he remember those experiences, or is he passive? He needs defragging, James said as he finished assembling the equipment. Funny you should say that, Eshram replied. Hendon has a theory we might be able to either dissipate him with some kind of electromagnetic pulse, or perhaps even capture John. Josh coughed. So we're going to evict the squatting ghost. He pointed at the glowing shapes that surrounded the armature. Placed equidistant from one another were four small circular pads, connected by a wire. What does all this do? James stood up. So these pads will act like participants in a seance situation. They generate heat and light. They are connected much like the linked hands. We hypothesise that the entity draws on ambient energy. We think that linked hands act like a completed circuit. Basically the idea that a lot of the ritual associated with hauntings and seances are successful because elements of it are inadvertently working as catalysts and triggering responses. Say for instance, seances are always performed in the dark with all the other lights turned off. Human bodies and that single flickering candle become the sole source of any kind of energy. The entity is thus drawn to this because it wants to become part of that circuit and as a result benefits from it. If this doesn't work, then we will physically perform the seance ourselves. We haven't decided that what role human interaction plays in this. If consciousness plays a role, are we dealing with something with agency, or is it a facsimile, playing person? How much of the theatre of it all can be considered actionable steps in manifesting it? Maggie interjected, actionable steps. Okay, consider all of those things that mediums do. When you strip away all the subterfuge, the charlatans, which is almost all of them, there are the ones who truly believe in their abilities. They have a system of summoning the spirits. What we want to know is, what are these acts, and can we consider them steps in a scientific process? Like you would any experiment. Add barium to a flame, and it will burn green. We know why it releases barium oxide that emits green light. We're trying to apply the scientific method to a field of belief. We can't call it science because there is very little science involved. It's ritual, wishful thinking, but for instance, by joining hands you can channel electrical current. And we know that's fact, so if we are to believe that these entities exist, and that they take advantage of that human interaction, how does that work? Does this exotic matter interact with us? Are we dealing with physical recordable events? Is this an infraction from another universe, another separate but parallel timeline? Nothing is off the cards. Maggie nodded. We know it can interact with our reality. Even if you discount things flying around the room at night, we have seen light interact with it in really strange ways. 
we are here to find the science in seance, Eshram added. You should copyright that, Josh joked. And the tent frame? James plays the hand on the closest upright lovingly. This is one of our failsafes. It's a modified Faraday cage. Basically, if we have any problems, this will provide a shelter for us. It bars all EM fields. It also allows us to judge whether we can indeed capture the entity, and if need be, can John be cut away like a cancer? Can't you use the fancy resin to seal him up, like a fish tank? asked Kirby. The resin is cumbersome and we need to first understand the nature of the entity, but we have devised a separate system that borrows from how that resin works and we shall implement that if this is successful, Eshram replied. Throughout the house, a system of sensors designed to detect micro changes in temperature, electromagnetic fluctuations and light emitters flashed responsively on a diagnostic report on James's laptop. They had commandeered the utility room, a modern extension that appeared to have no memorable activity. A series of fold-out tables held a bank of monitors. It was around 7pm when they decided to attempt to capture the first event. The fuses for all the rooms, apart from those in the front room and the utility room, were tripped. The house fell into a murk. The small heat pads were turned on and they glowed, their reflection caught in the window. They sat for a moment in silence, steadily increasing the temperature, and with it the intensity of the light produced by the pads. James turned to Eshram. Okay, good to go. Eshram turned to the group. So we isolated some interesting characteristics of the sound produced by the entity we interacted with in the lab, and from Maggie's EVP recordings she'd provided for us. There are a series of infrasound events, electromagnetic pulses that we believe are caused by the matter interacting with air, and what we believe is possibly caused by formations that mimic human vocal cords. We found a way to synthesise these sounds, and that's what you're about to hear. We're likening it to chumming the waters for sharks. They stood in silence watching the monitors. The grain of the image became pareidolia, eyes seeking patterns in the pixel gloom. A series of glottal booms and hisses filled the house. There was a rhythm that emerged from the white noise, an eerie physical sensation felt in the diaphragm. Why is it that the moment you try to observe the phenomena, it doesn't happen? Maggie whispered. Kirby slid their MacBook across the table. I think that's a very interesting aspect of all of this, and it's something we talked about a lot when planning this experiment. There are all these points of consequence. We have the human factor, if we rule out the phenomena as simply a collection of of misrememberings, delusions or psychological episodes, even medical conditions like migraine auras, we are left with the idea that the event, the spirit, is legitimate. So does the human element play a role in the ability for the entity to manifest? The entity needs someone to perceive it, much like the quantum theory, that observation affects reality. But enter the sceptic and the phenomena, in many cases, retreats. The ghost is scared of being the ghost that proves ghosts exist, Josh spat comically. Kirby frowned. This again raises the question of agency. Does the entity retreat through choice? Is it playing games with us? Does it know it's being observed? If not, then is the presence of new variables, our team and the equipment, changing the electromagnetic landscape that it usually uses to navigate within this space? Eshram posited. I think the presence is in a state of constant atrophy, drawn to, to sources of electromagnetic energy, and when it interacts with that, it becomes animated, perhaps invigorating those approximations of synapses or neurons firing, gaining that moment of clarity, an immense need of, or frustration to make itself known in that moment. They all sat with a feeling of unease. Josh said it first. I almost feel sorry for him. 
Imagine that, like a, an Alzheimer's patient, moments of lucidity and then just as quickly stolen away. No wonder they appear angry. Maggie broke the malaise. But all of this is conjecture. You have to actually see something, experience it to even know what you're dealing with. How do you measure the unmeasurable? James begrudgingly stood up. I believe you're right, and although I'm not one to be easily scared, I'm going to propose a controversial decision that we, the team that is, sleeps in the attic tonight. I believe that was the first place John was encountered. Put ourselves in the line of fire, so to speak, Esherham replied. Kirby rolled their eyes. I feel like I'm in one of those awful found footage movies about a group of adult actors playing teenagers who've decided to make a ghost hunting show and inadvertently encounter and then get killed by said ghost. I know, isn't it exciting, James retorted. The attic remained much as it had been found when Josh and Maggie moved in. There were a few boxes, but neither of them had accumulated any needless things, and much of their seldom used objects found other homes under beds and in the spare room. The few pieces of furniture left by the previous owners remained there too, including John Billingsley's possessions. James began to pump up the inflatable mattresses and found a corner to place his belongings. Eshram followed him up, finding the attic to be spacious. He unfurled his sleeping bag, eyeing the corner of the room. He had read the account of their host's experiences, and he hovered for a moment, unable to separate his fear from his objective reasoning. He saw the steady green light on the equidistant light emitters and pledged his devotion to them. He knew they would offer a degree of security, if it came to that. Kirby was the last to join them, and after a brief chat about the day's events, Eshram fell asleep. The soft tap of Kirby's keys and the pale light of their screen were the last images he saw before he fell asleep. He awoke to his name being spoken. At first he thought it was his wife waking him, and his eyes parted to catch that same anemic glow, thinking that Kirby was still working, despite the hour. He only had a thin pillow, and so he propped himself up on his elbow. Mere feet from him, a pale globe of light flickered. At first, little more than an orb, barely distinguishable from the vague light sources shining through the window from distant stars. Eshram rubbed his eyes, and yet it remained. He was suddenly aware of a feeling, something wrenching in the fathoms of his limbic system, prehistoric lizard fear, and it was screaming for him to run. The orb began to flicker. Like eight millimetre frames that peeled off in discarded films of light, the orb began to rotate, revealing it to be a three-dimensional object, although lacking any tangible substance. The movement was jarringly smooth, and at once the horror of its true form was revealed as an ear and the ridge of a brow came into view, and then its eyes. Sunken in each craterous hollow, a sallow gelatinous globe, pupils glassy yet directed with such malice mere feet from him. He clawed back against the wall, sheer terror sunk low in him, a gravitational shift that flung him upwards, the inflatable mattress sliding from under him, unable to get any purchase. James was awake with his phone in his hand, recording. How long have you been awake? hissed Eshram in terror. A good ten minutes. It's incredible. Why didn't you wake me up? Because I didn't want to disturb it. Are you fucking seeing this? As if in response, the head turned like a screw towards James, unflinching. James's eyes flared, yet he remained fixed on the task at hand. He spoke. The head is approximately two feet off the ground. The head is semi-transparent, yet seems to be shedding particles of itself. 
The head is not severed from the body, the body is simply not visible. The head does appear to be reacting to us. I will attempt to converse with it. James held his phone out and with shaky utterance said, John Billingsley. The face mouthed words. It gurned as though chewing at each consonant and syllable. There was a fraction of a second when it was very much there with them and with a blink it was gone. Kirby woke up just as the face evaporated. What's going on? They said sleepily. John Billingsley just introduced himself. Eshram relocated to the lounge for the rest of the night whilst Kirby and James talked and eventually fell asleep. In the morning, James transferred the footage to his laptop, where they all watched the somewhat anticlimactic video of a light distortion appearing close to Eshram. Very little detail was apparent, and yet both James and Eshram explained the missing information from the images on the screen. As the footage neared the moment where Eshram awoke, James quietened them all so as to listen for any response to his questions. An odd aspect of these hauntings is the ability to record sound not audible to the human ear, he said. That needs to be qualified, said Eshram. But yes, more often than not, voices have been picked up on audio equipment. John Billingsley. The voice of James, close to the mic on his phone. A subtle wing flutter of words came in response, and the distinguishable movement in the orb that could be its mouth. A few frames also caught what looked like eyes, casting a skeletal presence in that lightless place. Swung blind and black in the moonless air. They all looked to Maggie and Josh. That's Byron. I recognise it. Uh, I had a dream that wasn't a dream or something. Darkness, I think it's called. John was scared of dying. He had terminal cancer and he died a painful death. It was before everything shifted, before we made it worse. But this voice, it's calm. There is no urgency. He's not using that moment to relay information to us. And something about this head, it doesn't feel right. Regardless, we witnessed interaction. The presence was aware of us, said Eshram. Kirby nodded. This is actually really good. It shows that this phenomena, it is able to take on new information. Eshram agreed. Fear is a very base instinct, something I experienced last night. It's like light and dark. I want to know if John is more than a simple circuit board, only able to make on-off decisions. We need to get him to use the apparatus. Kirby put their hand up as if in school. I have an idea. Under the gazebo was room for one person in a chair besides the metal table and the equipment. Next to Kirby was their laptop, where they were instructed to press return if there was an issue and that would trigger the Faraday cage. It was a simple system. Four loose mesh blinds would drop within the frame, sealing them from the room. So my idea is to generate emotion. A strong emotional outburst. Fear will come naturally, but I feel fear perhaps is something the entity is all too familiar with. So are we going to swear at it, call it names, asked Josh. Kirby sighed. I have had some shitty experiences in my life. My parents disowned me when I came out as queer. It's a depth I do not wish to plumb, but needs must. Kirby sat with their head in their hands, and they digressed into memories. There were harmful and hurtful moments that when recalled could send them into a spiral. The thoughts came eagerly, yearning for attention. Kirby activated a recording programme and began to speak. I was 13 when I found it almost impossible to hide how I felt about myself. I had these chronic migraines from the stress. I even ended up in hospital. I felt so afraid of letting down my parents. My mum would call me a tomboy and I found it peculiar how that concept was so easily accepted. In their eyes, the word boy was already associated with me. 
I never wanted a label, never wanted to be anything. I just knew that so much of who I was was not tied to being a girl, being in a girl's body. It almost gave me hope that if I told them that I was non-binary, that I wanted to be seen through different lens, that it wasn't a huge leap. I was so wrong. Just to mention it sent my dad into a fit of rage. It was the worst thing for my father to be embarrassed of me. He couldn't distinguish between being gay or trans or queer. It was all against his beliefs. He wasn't even very religious, but it was a convenience to use that as an excuse. He basically didn't want to be embarrassed that his kid wasn't like his friend's kids. The more they spoke, the more the room attuned to them, the more they all felt a static charge, a sense that Kirby's emotional state had filled the room. There was a kinetic vibration, a resonance that leapt from them. Kirby talked until tears filled their eyes. In the utility room, they were unmoving, hovering around the monitors. James spoke. This is a very bad idea. I don't want Kirby to get hurt. Eshram whispered gently. It's rudimentary, yes, but it also plays into the idea of John being these states of emotion, captured, and he is reacting with emotion. His responses from what Maggie has told me have all been emotional, so even if he doesn't understand the words, he will understand Kirby's emotions. Think of them like weather fronts, moving in. Kirby is generating a weather front that impinges on John's, forces working against each other. The same way we would feel the presence of the tension in a room, you could discount that all as subconscious observations of body language, but perhaps there is an element of electrochemical discharge that we also attune to. If anything happens, Kirby can trigger the curtain and cut off their space from the room. Kirby wiped their eyes. The stylus moved. There was a stutter, a few awkward yanks, and then a smooth and somewhat rapid succession of letters. They flinched as the software began to collect the letters into announcements, each word carried on the familiar speech feature on most modern Apple products. Careless, careless. I could care less. Kirby felt pins and needles in their hands. They assumed a panic attack and immediately triggered the Faraday cage. The sensation continued, travelling up their arms in nerve-pinching agony, a muscular, sinewy pain, and soon they were staggering away from the table. They couldn't turn their head, but in their peripheral vision, they could see someone, something standing beside them. In the utility room, they saw it too. Standing behind, and in some regards overlapping Kirby, was the vague outline of a person, a shuddering, vaporous form. Kirby collapsed onto the floor. A moment later, Kirby stood inelegantly and walked towards the wall of the tent. Their feet caught the bottom, dragging it with them. They stumbled against the wire fabric, clumsy, apish arms dragging it away from them. Their skin was anemic and oily, as though rapidly consumed with illness. As the scaffolding folded around them, they lost consciousness once again. Kirby awoke in tears. They struggled against the sheets that had been tucked around them. They were in Maggie and Josh's bedroom. The bed was large and comfortable, and yet they were lying in a pool of sweat. Their mind was frayed, a pounding headache, relieved only when they stood upright. There was a glass of water on the bedside table. They drank it down and felt better for it. They stumbled out of the room, that unsteady disorientation of not knowing the time of day or the reason why they had woken in the bed. They walked downstairs to find James rebuilding the Faraday cage and Eshram and Maggie reorganising the equipment that had sat on the table within. How are you feeling? Eshram asked worriedly. I feel like shit. What the fuck happened? James went to them to offer support. You stood up and walked into the wall of the tent and pulled the whole thing down over you. Luckily you weren't hurt but we carried you upstairs. The entity, James said tentatively, 
It appeared beside you. Kirby promptly vomited. It was mostly water, but they sobbed and apologised as they dragged themselves up onto the sofa. Oh God, they felt a wave of nausea. He was in me. I thought it was a panic attack, but it was, it was like looking at yourself from above. He pushed me to one side. I wasn't in control. James spluttered. Christ, fucking Christ, possession? That's real? Kirby shook their head. No, no, it's not like that. He passed within me. I guess it makes sense if it's some kind of energy form. It felt like pins and needles and then bam, I was out. System reset, chimed Eshram. I wonder if that extra electrical charge overwhelmed your system. James added, yeah, but we haven't picked up any kind of electrical charge. John doesn't have a discernible electromagnetic presence. But neither did the child in the box. We have assumed that John occupies a facet of reality we don't fully understand, a clump of exotic matter that interacts with our physical world in a very unique way. Until we can record that, we are none the wiser. Kirby coughed. He owes me a fucking explanation. That was a violation. If he is conscious, he has some apologising to do. Eshram nodded. Are you good to continue or should we call it a night? Kirby shook their head defiantly. No, we do a proper seance. Old school. The dining room table was large enough to accommodate everyone. Eshram would perform the seance, but it would require them all to be active participants. The stylus sat at the centre of the table, and they again tripped all of the fuses beside those in use in the dining room. Okay, so we will link hands and I will perform a simple summoning. There is very little to this beyond the idea that I should be physically receptive to spirits. I am not, and therefore we are at the mercy of whether John wants to participate. Eshram removed a small bottle of water from his bag, a copy of the Bible, and a crucifix. Maggie looked a little confused. Before she could ask, Eshram explained, I felt it appropriate to bring the items we associate with these rituals. Everything must be carried out as prescribed by mediums. I want to try and stick to script as much as possible. Are you Christian? Josh asked. No, I'm an atheist, but my parents were Sikh. Right, well, I feel like those objects have far more in common with exorcism than a seance. Eshram shrugged. Think of them as a last line of defence if things go south. They all sat down and nervously took each other's hands. Eshram closed his eyes, which Kirby observed as an interesting subconscious choice. Eshram didn't believe himself to be a psychic or medium, and yet much of what he was doing was Seance 101. They wondered how much of it was performative or genuine belief. We are reaching out to any spirits with us this evening. We are here to speak with anyone seeking to contact the living. You are welcome here, please. If you are here, let us know. The room felt oddly airless, almost as Eshram finished his request. They looked to one another and he asked again. Moments later, a loud, sourceless bang was heard. They all jumped. If you are willing to talk with us, make one knock for no, two knocks for yes. Two knocks followed. Are you John Billingsley? Kirby listened intently for any sign of response. They were immediately aware of an odd, low murmur. Looking to the mouths of their colleagues, they saw no movement. They leaned down, finding it ever so slightly louder close to the floor. The tingling began in their nose, passing through their sinuses and down into their body. They began to cry out, a nasal, agonising cry, as their ability to enunciate was denied. Finally, they screamed out, He's here! And they fell back, as though the entity had snagged on them. Eshram turned to find Kirby on the edge of their seat, hands on the arms of the chair. Their face was crumpled, leaning over ever so slightly to the side. They looked to be in a great deal of pain. 
The stylus flickered erratically. The speech function was a shock as it began to collate words. Confused. Takes effort. Eshram checked on Kirby and then returned to his chair. John, we are scientists. We are trying to understand what you are, where you are. Can you tell us anything? The stylus flashed. Always here, always here. Lights in eyes can't see. James perked up. Ask him if he knows he's dead. The stylus swung wildly across the board. They were all startled, the whirring bleat of electric servos being restrained. Eventually it was released, spitting out letters with no sense of arrangement. The stylus then recentered, and the speech was replaying in sequence. As it did so, so too did Kirby, in jarring syncopation. Much of what I was is lost. It's all unfinished sentences, half-thoughts, half-feelings. I began in the agony of my own final memory. I was just going around and around in the vacuum of that one violent end. All I knew was pain, silence, pain and silence. Some people came to the house. I saw prisons of light, different paths, all unknown, terrifying black where the light petrified. Each new person, an aura of confusion, a fuzzy, indeterminate being. They rarely see me, and when they do, there is fear, and I cannot help but feel nothing but rage, for all I want is peace. The presence of others is turbulence, infractions, and the numbing ceaseless imperceptibility. This house is haunted, but not by me. This house is haunted, but not by me. There was the perception of an intake of breath and aurora blossomed in ugly yellow-white above them. Again, with the glutinous, sallow light, the form was incomplete and utterly terrifying as a face emerged from the strands of ghoulish ether. It was John. My God, James whispered. The corona of liquid seemed to froth and churn, losing its human-like features. James slowly leaned forward and triggered the pads that surrounded the stylus. Their warm glow seemed to bolster the presence. Maggie went to Kirby's side, giving them a gentle shake. Kirby, come back to us. Kirby's eyes flew open, and they jumped. Oh fuck, not again. Their upset was quickly overcome as their gaze fell on the undulating wraith that hung above the table. John, you fucker, leave me alone. The rage echoed through him in spasms of sickly iridescence. The emotion reacted like a catalyst. The form evaporated. Maggie raised her voice. We keep calling all of this John. It's not all John. Did you listen to what Kirby said? The house is haunted, but not by me. I think he was warning us of something else. Kirby spluttered, eyes dilated. I think she's right. John felt clumsy, felt rushed, before was deliberate and considered. It felt old. Eshram appeared to have something of an epiphany. It's Kirby. Something about Kirby that is attuned to this. Some kind of resonance, a quality of you that John or whatever is adhering to. It Kirby, is it true that poltergeists tend to be personal hauntings, as opposed to place hauntings? Could we be witnessing proof of that here? Eshram, for one, I'm not being paid enough for this shit. Two, I have no clue. The pseudoscience is that adolescent children, especially young female-bodied children, are linked to poltergeist activity, and there is a school of thought that the quote-unquote poltergeist is actually some kind of inherent subconscious telekinetic ability that comes through after puberty. The psychologist in me says that that's horseshit and that we are grouping unrelated mundane events and calling it a phenomena. But that, that was a fucking ghost and that just used my body like a sodding puppet. Counter-argument, James said. 
We are all in a shared delusion and we are misinterpreting some kind of light refraction or exposure to carbon monoxide. None of this is actually happening. They all shot him a look of dismissal. There was now a very present rushing sound. James was monitoring various sensors from his iPad. He put on a pair of headphones so he could listen. I'm picking up some very strange noises coming from various parts of the house. Kirby became aware of an odd metallic taste in their mouth. At first it remained faint, but all of a sudden, this was followed by the sensation of their tongue swelling. They began to cough, in an effort to shift the feeling, but it remained. The noise in the room was growing. They all looked to one another for reassurance, whilst Kirby continued to feel very odd. Guys, I think I'm having a panic attack. James's phone promptly rang. Uh, yes sir, yes I'm picking up some of that here, not sure of the source. I yes sir. Eshram shot him a look. Arkwright is asking us to trigger. Maggie had now left the table and was escorting Kirby to the rocking chair in the corner of the room. Josh looked concerned. What's the trigger? Kirby interrupted. Guys, I think... Eshram ignored Kirby and continued. When Arkwright began trying to understand the phenomena of hauntings, he had devised a series of hypothetical methods of sealing a space affected by the presence of extra-physical matter or exotic matter. We tried one of them in our investigation of the box. That was partially successful. There was a quality of shellac-based resin that blocked the matter. We realised that it was the one thing we could measure, its interaction with electromagnetic radiation. We managed to create an EM field that behaved in a way that would isolate the substance that the entities are comprised of. We installed it here. The Faraday tent? Josh asked. No, that's to seal us off from them. The trigger is the sensors we installed throughout the house, the cables. Those aren't strictly sensors, although they do capture information. They act as a transient EM field. We can seal the house off from the outside world. We can trap the entity in the house, seal off that room, and we, in effect, imprison it for study. Kirby slumped in their chair. As they did so, their lips parted and an unfurling coagulate mass began to protrude from their mouth. It defied gravity, clotting into organelles of a foamy, oleaginous matter. Motherfucker, Josh uttered. Maggie clutched Kirby's hand. They were sobbing, unable to have any control over it. Eshram got up and disappeared for a moment, returning with a flight case. Within was a clear cylinder. He removed it, unlatched the lid, and collected the mass from their mouth. As it broke away from their lips, the remaining portion within their mouth dissipated. The form remained intact in the tube. Ectoplasm, Eshram said. I will have this analysed. Are you okay, Kirby? They shook their head and collapsed on the table. Why me? They croaked. Why fucking me? Josh frowned. We need to do something about this or get Kirby away from here. It's obviously affecting them far more than us. Kirby shook their head. No. No, this is the test. This is why we're here. James returned the call. You are go for trigger. He opened his laptop. It's coming online now. The house was shown as a wire frame, with a host of small green markers indicating each node in the grid. It spanned every square metre of the house, with long cables on the floor that acted as nodes themselves. The rooms were even divided, so that individual spaces could be isolated. The nodes will turn from green to red when their unique signal is disturbed. Almost all the nodes immediately turned red. Josh gave out a humourless laugh. Ha, <laughs> I'm guessing you weren't expecting that. James began to reset the software. This is all new tech, bound to be teething problems. The program opened again, with the lights remaining red. Eshram leaned over his shoulder. I don't understand, what am I seeing? James picked up his phone to call. Damn it, I can't call. The fields are blocking signal, I... His face fell. He was looking at the centre of the room. They both followed his gaze. The room, it was moving. 
The wall, having been a metre from them, had moved away from them. A disorientating ripple began to striate across the surface of the air, like a heat blue. I'm either drunk or something very weird is happening, said Josh. It's the extra physical matter. We have seen how it distorts light in Arkwright's early studies. The room must be full of it. The bulbs then blew in their sockets and they were all plunged into darkness. Maggie sat beside Kirby. The lack of light did not lessen the motion sickness as the room before them shifted in tones of grey. She pulled her phone out. It was as useless as a brick. Kirby clung to her. They've set off some kind of EMP. It will have cancelled all electrical signal. We won't be able to call for help. Maggie swore under their breath. The hubris of trying to control things we don't understand. Kirby laughed. And how does that make you feel? Maggie took Kirby's hand. You can psychoanalyse me all you want when we get out of this, but right now, I'm unsure if we're in Kansas anymore. Can you explain why the walls are shifting like that? Kirby shook their head. I imagine Eshram has an idea, but I can only suggest it has something to do with the exotic mass or matter or whatever. It, it tends to bend light. Maggie frowned. I think this is ill Hendon Arkwright. Look, I'm going to try and find Josh. I think it's best we stick together and get out of this room somehow. Deal? Kirby looked above them to see the ceiling begin to rotate. There were slithers of gossamer that lapped against the cornicing, vague effigies of faces in the gloom. You know what? I think I'm going to stay here. I feel really weak. Come find me if you have any luck. Maggie reluctantly let go and began to make for the door. The door moved in a horizontal fashion across the floor, sending her sprawling into a tumble. She opened her eyes to find herself at the foot of the stairs. Behind her, the corridor flexed away. She scrambled up the stairs, the hairs on her arms standing on end. There was something very wrong here. She made for her bedroom. The bed was the only recognisable aspect of the room. The dimensions were disfigured, a churning spasm of angles that were only quiet when her eyes were closed. She sat and thought about it. How was this happening? It wasn't within her realm of knowledge, but she knew that sound could cause visual hallucinations. She knew that low frequencies could make her retinas vibrate, could trigger nausea. She knew the house was filled with technology that messed with electromagnetic fields. For all the spooks and weirdness, all that she had experienced could be explained rationally. She heard a commotion, the sound of a child laughing, a baby crying, an old man shouting for it to be quiet. The voices were accompanied by spectral filigrees that bloomed and died in the gloom. She decided, fuck it, pulled open the large built-in wardrobe and climbed in. There was a knock at the door. Maggie clenched her teeth and bravely opened it. Outside was a man in his seventies, grey hair tucked behind his ears and a well-manicured beard. She had met him once before, when he had visited the house some months back and convinced both Josh and herself, Josh being one of his greatest fans, that the house was indeed home to a presence that could be explained through advanced physics and quantum mechanics. To find Hendon Arkwright towering over her now was both a relief and, to her surprise, made her exceedingly angry. Are you okay? he said. Maggie let out a groan. What the fuck have you done to our house? Hendon sighed. Our experiments have resulted in unforeseen circumstances. The field has acted like a fishing net in many ways, dredging up a collection of errant matter. Each cluster is carrying multiple waveforms, personalities. Some are visual, others are simply causal outbursts. Interestingly, this magnitude of errant matter is affecting how we perceive reality. 
When we leave this house, I will be conducting a thorough investigation into the physical effects of close proximity to that matter. It will explain a great many aspects of missing time and experiences of non-Euclidean geometry. Your house doesn't appear to be adhering to our understanding of its architecture. Maggie grimaced. You think? It's okay, I've developed a series of countermeasures. I will trigger an EMP and that will defuse the situation. Wasn't it an EMP that triggered the situation? She replied. Hendon struggled to counter the question. In a way, yes, but with the second pulse, it will detach the unwanted presences in the house. Why don't you just turn off the grid? Hendon ignored the question, readjusting a coil of wire slung over his shoulder. In his hand was a trolley handle, with a series of objects that looked like camera stands behind him. May I use your room? Yes, go ahead. Thank you. I will meet you outside shortly. I am sorry our experiment took such a drastic turn. Maggie sighed. No one could have known. She left the room, crouching as she moved towards the corridor. Before her, the landing appeared to convulse, as though sheets of magnifying glass were passing in front of her eyes. It was disorienting, but she closed her eyes and felt her way towards the stairs. Eventually, she reached the top step and peeked out to get her bearings. The stairs were a nauseating, ever-realigning series of hillocks below her, steps fanned in concertinas like animated piano keys. With eyes closed, she descended. Downstairs was dizzying facets of dark and light and the murmur of disembodied voices. She took a moment and paused on the bottom step. She could sense someone in her periphery, and she shrieked as a gnarled phosphorescent face glowered at her, mere inches to her left, reforming in a withering stream of vapour out into the room. The face was not John, some other consciousness. The curtain to the Faraday cage had already been triggered. She hissed at the tent. It's Maggie! Who's in there? The tent side was lifted and within was Josh and Eshram. Where is Kirby? They're out there at the centre of all of this, she replied. Maggie shook her head. We have to get them. We have to get them out of here. They're not safe. Josh winced. What is wrong with this house? The walls, it's, it's like a fucking kaleidoscope. Hendon is here. He says that other clumps of this exotic matter, they've been pulled into the experiments. I have no idea how or why. I saw other presences in the house. Angry ones, Maggie whispered. Eshram looked concerned. Hendon is here? When did he get here? James looked sheepishly back. He was observing us. I guess he saw everything go to shit. But he won't come empty-handed. I imagine he'll have the house on lockdown soon enough. Kirby sat behind the rocking chair. The room was a harrowing tunnel of black, a paralysing vortex that seemed to dither and flex. It was vomit-inducing, and so they kept their head low. There was little else they could do, but, like Maggie, found that the visual hallucinations were just that, and by closing their eyes, they could feel their way around the room, grasping mundane objects that, when their eyes were open, were obscured by the auras of esoteric matter. The sound of voices came in waves, the murmur and cackle of chasm laughter of the disembodied. Eyes closed, it was less unnerving, less potent. They reached out to what felt like the dresser in the opposite corner of the room. They opened their eyes to confirm, only to glance out into the prisms of walls and furniture, to see a tall black figure, eyes milk white, staring directly at them. It did not have the presence of John. Kirby immediately realised that this was the thing that had violated them in the Faraday cage. It was malignant, something old and transient. It began to move, an unceasing slow drift towards them, its eyes emotionless yet holding so much intent. This was bad, 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 bad. This was not a confused old man, this was something quite different. Kirby screamed out, but it was no good. Soon it was a foot from them, and they pushed through the door to their right into the kitchen. 
They slam the door behind them, only to watch the door dematerialise, to see the entity still very much present. But now there was nowhere, and the kitchen, cabinets, the central island, flourishes of right angles distended into infinity, and they were alone in the dark with this thing. Something sharp hit their face. It was hard to describe, and yet familiar, like hot sand in a strong wind. They watched the room shift as something burst through the delirious geography of the kitchen, something physical, something they knew. They sat in awe as it tore through the dark figure, shredding it into gobbets of oil that separated from the hole. Unable to recombine, the figure did not react in dismay, but fractured and dissolved, leaving Kirby alone once again. They tried to see the culprit, and eventually it dawned on them. It was a cluster of iron filings. They closed their eyes and imagined the layout of the house. To their right was a door to the hallway, and on their left as they went into the hall was a door to the front room. They didn't want to go back the way they came, despite the figure dispersing, so they began to feel their way to the hall. The Doppler effect of voices shrieking and diminishing beside them, the cold effect of ambient heat being absorbed by the extra physical presences, the flicker and flutter of something touching them, a hand grabbing their foot and pulling them back with a painful tug, only for them to turn to see nothing there, and then, before they knew it, they were at the door to the lounge, through the door and finally, the Faraday tent. They hauled themselves in, sealing the curtain behind them. They were all in the tent now, crammed in. Maggie hugged Kirby. Did you see Arkwright? Kirby shook their head. No, no, I only saw those things out there. And you won't believe it. I think the child, the Egyptian child, is here. I think it helped me. James laughed nervously. What do you mean? I was being followed by the fucking Babadook and I saw the iron filings. That cluster was here, just as it was in the lab, and it tore through that evil fuck. I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but it cut that bastard to ribbons. Eshram posited. I imagine it was attracted here like all the other presences in the house. I don't imagine it was aware of you or your connection to our encounter with it, but then again we did free it from a 2,000 year prison sentence. James coughed, and 52 stitches was the thanks we got. There was a commotion outside the tent. Maggie lifted the blind to see a group of people entering the house. They were carrying large black tubes wrapped in copper wire. The EMP. Hendon peered in. Okay folks, time to get out. We're going to trigger the EMP. Tired and bewildered, the group stood at the end of the drive as the last technicians exited the house. They were carrying a large collapsible cuboid. It resembled aspects of the gazebo, but had a grid of small blinking red lights across its surface. Four men were manoeuvring it out of the front door on a series of braces. Maggie recognised those as the items Hendon had brought into the house. What's in there? James asked. I've not seen that before. Hendon grinned. My white whale. Arkwright had a radio trigger switch. He looked back at the team, as though to seek approval. Maggie looked up to see if she could make out John Billingsley, the final occupant of their home. This time, no face looked back. Hendon triggered the EMP, and the house went black. A few hours later, Josh had replaced all of the fuses in the house. Some electronic devices had been destroyed by the EMP, but thankfully the evacuation team had secured their laptops and disconnected any Arkwright apparatus from power sources. Josh and Maggie tidied as much as their tiredness permitted. Kirby stood in the kitchen. Close to the conservatory door was a sprinkling of iron filings. They found a polythene bag in a drawer and managed to collect most of them. Eshram joined them. A keepsake? he said. Yes. 
Seems cruel that after being free for the first time in thousands of years, we destroyed it, or perhaps we freed it. We cannot know how much sentience was in it, whether it was just a force of nature, like magnetism. It's one with the universe again. I cannot discount the fact that, given half a chance, that wretched thing would have hurt me and it took this little fella to stop it. Well, hinder it. I guess we'll never know. Eshram gave a nod and returned to James to help remove the equipment. It was the following morning that Arkwright Institute finally removed the array of sensors from the house and returned the keys to Maggie and Josh. In the doorway, Maggie stood, feeling a warm breeze making its way through the house and into the back garden. The house had changed personality. There was definite peace, not a missing part, but more of a wholeness. Eshram made his goodbyes. Thank you for letting us perform the experiment. Despite the rather harrowing experience last night, we have successfully removed the entity or indeed entities from your home. I hope whatever you choose to do with the house, I wish you the best of luck. Kirby gave them both a big hug. Definitely feels different in there, they said. Maggie smiled. It does. The debrief occurred the following week. Hendon Arkwright was exuberant and full of praise, which had not been expected. Eshram found himself apologising to the accolades, only to be left a little confused. The experiment was only partly successful. We dissipated the entities in the house, but we still have very little information pertaining to their... Well, to anything. We still do not understand anything about them. Hendon grinned. Well, then I will let you in on a secret. The experiment was very much a success. It actually went far more to plan than you can imagine. Kirby Fitzpatrick. Now, when we chose them for the team, there was a definite merit for having their academic perspective, but there was a far more prescient reason to get them on board. You see, Kirby had an MRI scan when they were 13. They were suffering from acute migraines. Nothing to worry about, and the doctors found nothing of consequence on any of the scans, and it was put down to anxiety, but you see... We have access to medical records going back 20 years for almost everyone in the country, and we were searching for a specific type of neurological activity, a key ingredient, something that has no mental or physiological effect on the individual, but curiously appears to sync with the electromagnetic architecture we have witnessed in our experiments with the extra-physical matter. It was Kirby who triggered the activity in the Egyptian box. It was Kirby who acted like a radio transmitter. They opened up the possibilities, and the possibilities came to us. Eshram coughed. You mean to say we used Kirby as a tuning fork? Hendon laughed. Yes, a very smart and talented tuning fork. They were our catalyst. Once the seances, both your utilitarian affair and the Dickensian attempt were performed, Kirby was there to be an open door. We assumed John would take advantage of this, but instead it was something else. We sealed it off, sealed it off, and then, like shooting fish in the barrel, we took the opportunity to secure our asset. He spun on his foot youthfully and ushered Eshram into the corridor and continued talking. We have been working on a new facility, and I am hopeful that you will be very keen to continue in this pursuit. A double set of doors opened automatically into a changing area, with a clean room airlock in the far corner. They each took a white coverall that could be worn over their clothes, and then passed through the interim airlock and eventually into the lab. Within was a raised walkway, flanked by pressurised canisters, giant pieces of obscure machinery. The vapour of liquid nitrogen rose from massive vibrating electromagnets housed between three large convolutions of wires and pipework carrying argon gas into central windowed chambers. The windows were of deep sea marine construction with heavy duty bolts. The windows themselves were at least two metres tall. Come, Hendon gestured to the first tank. At first Eshram stared at his reflection in the glass. The reflection seemed to expand and contract. 
Within his own image was an inversion, a black disturbance in the centre of the chamber, a shuddering, writhing embolism that was somehow reminiscent of both smoke and oil. Two orbs glowered back at him. It was utterly terrifying. We are taking real-time imaging of the electromagnetic signature in its mass. Look at how it absorbs light, like a black hole. It sucks it in. Those eyes, get this, they're not eyes. They're a mass of photons that are collected and held by a strong current within the matter that revolves at 150 revolutions per second. We believe the consciousness manipulates its physical appearance, but it's involuntary. It is generated like a projection itself. We are seeing thoughts, memories. This is why we often see ghosts in antiquated clothing. They are not clothes, but a memory of clothes. Fascinating. This is the one that possessed Kirby. It looks malicious, Eshram said. Is it malicious or pure chaos? The mind that conjures such an image of itself. What is it? A human? A murderer of children? Or was it an animal? Perhaps it never lived as one being. Perhaps it is a collection of consciousness, different lives captured like photographs, morphing together into an insane chimera. Is that the data you're hoping to capture? Eshram barely managed to get the words out. We have some of the most advanced artificial intelligence extrapolating it. We have managed to ascertain that the consciousness can manipulate the matter it resides in. The electrical impulses carry with them some kind of memory of their living form. The matter moulds to this. The second chamber was empty, but the third was occupied. Within was a pale formation, barely anything. For fractions of a second it fluoresced, a vague outline of a man. John Billingsley. We've begun to experiment with bolstering his signature with EM pulses. Thanks to Kirby, we know the frequency of manipulation. We can bring John into focus or dissipate him. The more food we give him, the more stable he becomes. Eshram shook his head. I feel we are straying into muddy waters. There are ethical issues at play. This is a consciousness. Do we know if it feels pain? Yes, they do. Pain is just another electrical signature. It is a malfunctioning garbled mess when there is no physical body, but yes, they feel pain. But this, this is the future. Once we isolate the matter, once we know how it forms, where it forms, once we know how to fine tune the transference, then death is a shadow of its former self. An entire consciousness can imprint on it. My friend, we have conquered death. This is the end of season one, and I hope to return to this world in another series later in the year. If you enjoyed this audio drama, you may be interested to know that I have three books currently available at alexcf.bigcartel.com. The first is a novel entitled Seek the Throat from Which We Sing, a visceral tale of animal mythology in the vein of Watership Down and The Secret of Nim. The second is an accompanying full-colour illustrated encyclopaedia called The Arata, a compendium of the cultures and creeds of Nar. And the third is the soon-to-be-released sequel to Seek the Throat from Which We Sing, which is called Wretched is the Husk, and that will be available next week, as of uh, Thursday 27th of January today. I hope to create more audio dramas in the future, so if you enjoyed this, please let me know. Thanks.